This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman in today for Catherine Cruz. As you just heard at the top of the hour on NPR, U.S.-South Korean relations in today's headlines. In just a few hours, President Biden will host a state dinner at the White House for South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul. It's only the second state visit of the Biden administration following last year's visit of French President Emmanuel Macron. President Yoon is in the United States all this week on a multi-state visit marking the 70th anniversary of the alliance between the United States and the Republic of Korea. His meetings in Washington come at a sensitive time, not only for regional security, but also for trade. I spoke about the trip with the Washington, D.C.-based vice president of the East-West Center, Satu May. He also created and directs the Asia Matters for America initiative, including the recently released Korea Matters for America. We started our conversation talking about the significance of this visit. It comes at a very important time. Korea, as you know, has made enormous progresses in its economy, its footprint in diplomacy, its regional role, its cultural uh, power in terms of movies and music and soft power. So it comes at a very important time for uh, issues of diplomacy, defense, security, trade, high technology. And so I think there's a lot of anticipation as what will happen over the next couple of days, including uh, expected remarks to a joint session of the United States Congress. The security issues with North Korea, not new, but Given the last nearly year and a half of missile launches and other developments, is there any level of increased urgency with this? Well, I think that it's always worrying, uh, given North Korea's uh, provocations, um, its missile firings, its announcements, its threats. I do not see anything fundamentally new in those dynamics. I think deterrence still is an important element of the approach to North Korea. I think the fact that the U.S. and the Republic of Korea, South Korea, are pursuing exercises, holding up defense and deterrence, aligning very closely on their approach to North Korea, suggests that we are in a manageable state. But, of course, there are always unpredictable elements of North Korea, and so we cannot, in any sense, let our guard down. But I do believe that not for a long time have the U.S. and the Republic of Korean government's been so much in alignment on how to handle and how to deal with issues in terms of North Korea. Part of the, the calculus from the U.S. perspective on, when it comes to regional security is that triangular relationship among the United States, South Korea, and Japan. Painful history there, of course, but last month, President Yoon announced a settlement plan over wartime labor issues. What is your sense of current relations between South Korea and Japan, and and how important is that as part of this bigger picture? First of all, I think it's really important that the uh, United States, uh, South Korea, and Japan are in alignment. It is, as you say, in one leg of that triangle, has been historically and otherwise a difficult relationship. Uh, But I must say that uh, the last year since President Yoon has taken office, has led to some quite remarkable overtures by the Republic of Korea, South Korea, to Japan. Now, in the past, there have been efforts at rapprochement, at putting relations back on track that can be disrupted by internal politics and internal developments on either side, in Korea and in Japan. Uh, But one gets a sense uh, that in this new environment, Um, the Republic of Korea, Japan, and the U.S. are making really a kind of a different baseline for working together trilaterally. And one can only hope that this persists. Lots of joint meetings, lots of joint statements, lots of officials meeting. East West Center hosted a U.S.-Japan ROK National Security Council uh, 1.5 track dialogue last month. So there are clearly linkages that didn't happen before and have not happened recently. And so we can see this as a positive sign in a trilateral relationship, particularly in a region which has a number of security challenges. I mean, look at where South Korea lives, surrounded by North Korea, China, Russia, etc. So this is a really important development between the three democracies and the three allies. Talking about some of the complicated relationships within that region, certainly South Korea and China, 
a complicated relationship. Pressure right now with the United States applying pressure to China when it comes to the semiconductor area in particular. South Korea, two global leaders in memory chips, Samsung, SK, Hynix, both have major production facilities in China. Do you see that pressure as something that is political, that is corporate, that is uh, that envelops both of those worlds? Yeah, there's no question that the issue of semiconductors, Chinese access to technology in the context of geoeconomics and economic security is an important element of the U.S.-South Korea dialogue. And given Korea's real importance in this field, um, partnership with Korea is critical. And there are, of course, government elements, security elements, uh, corporate, simply business elements. And I think the U.S. approach, as I understand it, is really very narrowly focused on the very, very high-end chips that could be applied to People's Republic of China military, those kinds of uses, not in general the chips that apply to production, manufacturing, the chips that occur in consumer products, etc. So I think there is an avenue for U.S.-South uh, Korea cooperation in this. Obviously, Korean companies will be watchful that they don't uh, lose business in uh, China, this huge market where there is a lot of Korean investments in production and manufacturing but also so that they are not retaliated against by China or punished by China uh, for curtailing certain elements. So South Korea has to balance these things. Uh, I believe they're doing so. I think there is an understanding that the U.S. seeks very narrowly scoped efforts that really could lead to or contribute to uh, People's Liberation Army military uses rather than general manufacturing and business elements. More broadly, President Yoon also going to Boston on this trip, giving a speech at Harvard, as well as, as you mentioned, to Congress, but plans to go to NASA. That emphasis on science and technology, also meeting with media companies. Netflix just announced it's going to spend $2.5 billion on Korean content over the next four years. South Korea's government really raising its own profile with this trip in many ways and across many sectors. Yeah, this is a really fascinating part of the trip. In some ways, you know, security is important, economics is important, trade, investment important. But, you know, Korea is now one of the top 10 economies in the world. And depending on the year and how you count it, you know, one of the top 10 economies in the world. The cultural power is enormous. Here you have Netflix carrying Korean-produced dramas, uh, soaps that are popular worldwide, but are Things like Squid Game are, are, are really popular. As we all know, a Korean language film won the best Academy Award film uh, a couple of years ago. So what you're seeing is Korea, not just this 70-year-ago image of a war-torn country pulling itself up, but really Korea has arrived. Korea is on the global stage. As you know, Korea, along with Japan and Australia, attended the NATO summit in Madrid. They're expected to attend this summer, July, in Vilnius. They've been invited back. So you see Korea playing in Europe. You see it now not just coming to Washington, but making its mark felt in Hollywood, in California, going up to the Boston high-tech corridor, but also universities. People also should realize that Korea is the third largest source of foreign students in the United States, and people sometimes forget that. It's a very important source of foreign students. If I'm not mistaken, per capita basis, Korean PhDs are the highest in the world on a per capita basis, given the population of Korea uh, from the United States. So, you know, there's lots of ways in which Korea now has made a mark. There are two million Korean Americans in the United States large numbers of Korean-American elected officials at national and state local levels. So in all ways, Korea is arriving on the 70th anniversary as a major U.S. partner and as a major global player. In summary, what do you think might be the most important part of this trip, and, and what are you watching for on this trip? I'm really watching carefully for a couple of things on the policy front. One is the decisions on the high-tech sector and the supply resilience for manufacturing. 
I'm also looking for announcements on Korean investment in the United States, as you know, because of the auto sector and others, how Korea and the U.S. deal with opportunities for Korea to get involved in the green sector of the U.S. economy, whether that's electric vehicles or uh, um, consumer durable goods and what kind of production might be set up here. And then I'm also looking for, really, since I'm doing a media interview, I'm looking for how Korea is described in the national media over the next couple of days, whether the focus is on security or culture or the enormous impact and influence Korea is having in um, K-pop and other things. So I'm looking both for the specific policy angles, but also sort of the way in which modern Korea is portrayed in the United States on this very important visit uh, at the 70th anniversary of the Alliance Mark. Satu LeMay is vice president of the East-West Center. He's also created and directs Asia Matters for America initiative, along with South Korea Matters for America, both available online. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Bill. Great to have me on your show. Appreciate it. Next Wednesday in Honolulu, the East-West Center is hosting a public discussion on U.S.-Korea relations in partnership with the University of Hawaii Korean Studies and the Korean Consulate. It will be at the Korean Studies Building at UH Manoa. Also will be streamed online. We'll have links on our website later today. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. For today's Backyard Quiz, we spotlight Carlos Appiani Long. His father, Charles Long, was an Italian immigrant from Milan. His mother, Julia Naoho, was a native Hawaiian from Maui and a relative of historian Samuel Kamakao. Growing up in Honolulu, Long studied at St. Louis School in Punahou, where he played football. He later went to Santa Clara University, then studied law at Stanford and finished at Georgetown University. After graduating, he was admitted to the bar in D.C., but he later returned home to the islands, which by then had been annexed to the United States. He would go on to enter politics, first with the Home Rule Party, then with the Republican Party. His stepfather was one of Queen Liliuokalani's cabinet members. And our backyard quiz question today is, what was the name of Carlos Long's stepfather? If you know, call 808 808- 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. Well, it continues to be a busy week at the state legislature. Now we have a budget. House and Senate negotiators reached a deal last night, and Civil Beat's Chad Blair joins us this morning with some details. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Bill. Nice to be on with you today. Yes, good to have you. And the agreement on that overall budget framework now opens the door really to further legislative work. It really does. And this is Kevin Dayton's report. He was actually there. I was not there late at the Capitol. It was 8.45 p.m. last (laughs) night, and kudos to Kevin for 
for being there for the Ways and Means and Finance negotiations. And yeah, it sets up the budget for the next two years. Uh, but you're absolutely right. What it really also does is it opens up, I say, the floodgates, because until the state budget is signed off on, and this is actually by the state constitution, you can't sign off on other bills, particularly ones with their own appropriations. In other words, bills with dollar signs in them. And boy, we are cutting it close because tomorrow, Thursday, is the deadline for non-fiscal. And then those fiscal bills, that deadline is Friday around 5 p.m. or so. So uh, really a major development last night with uh, an agreement on the budget, although there's still some pukas out there, as they say. (laughs) But also, as you point out, really this sort of sends it into a uh, almost kind of a beat the clock (laughs) scenario in terms (laughs) of that that final decking, as as it's called for for financial bills, anything that's got to go through, as as you say, um, in terms of, of dollar bills attached. Uh, and so, again, sort of setting up a flurry of activity to come. Right. And what we should say is the, the budget bill itself, House Bill 300, handles a whole lot of, of funding. And then there are these separate pieces of legislation that fund other projects. But you got to get that budget bill done first. Kevin actually highlights a couple of things that are worth mentioning. $4 billion for state construction that figure includes about $750 million, uh, in federal and state funds to take care of schools, maintenance of public schools, UH, uh, state buildings. If anybody's visited the state capitol lately, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Another major expenditure, $280 million to subsidize rental housing. I mean, that's really a way to create more affordable housing units. That has been a priority for both the House and the Senate and the new governor, Josh Green. And something uh, high for the uh, for the Green administration also with uh, tax relief uh, proposals those those still on the table as well. They are. This has not been finalized yet. And uh, Donovan Dela Cruz, the WAM chair, did say that he was optimistic that that would happen. I won't name them all, but a- among those tax breaks or tax credits uh, is one that doubles the state food excise tax credit, and it makes the state earn income tax credit the EITC. Uh, for lower income residents, it gives them a more generous amount. And so that's something that people are in favor of. There's another one that increases the child independent uh, care tax credit. That's also to help families with kids in daycare, no small expense, particularly here in Hawaii. So there's a couple others as well. We'll see hopefully that being finalized in the next few days. And as you mentioned, in terms of coming down to it, uh, with the the end of the session approaching, really, you 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 watch your your um, in terms of politics and 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 watching that. You've seen this for a long time at the legislature, and being able to compare sort of different sessions. Different sessions have different characteristics. Um, unfair question, but what's your sense of how things are are going this time around? I happened to be there uh, around 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock when the budget uh, hearings were happening until the news broke that it wasn't going to happen until later in the, the evening. But you could just tell there was a, a, a sort of a, a heightened sense of awareness, people out on the rails, legislators, lobbyists, other special interests, sort of a heightened sense of excitement that finally things are moving here. I think particularly in marked contrast to the recent sessions that have been marred by COVID, right? I mean, for mm-hmm. a while there, the Capitol was shut down completely. So you sense sort of a change in dynamic. And whenever you have a dead Line approaching, and we do Friday at 5 p.m. or so, it really adds a sense of uh, momentum. Nothing like a deadline to focus one's <laughs> mind, <laughs> as you know. Chad, thanks very much. Exactly. Thanks, Bill. That was Civil Beat's politics and opinion editor, Chad Blair. You can read his stories, those of his colleagues, including Kevin Dayton, online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual and in-person courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual open house Sunday, April 30th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Today on The Daily, more than half of Democratic voters don't want Joe Biden to seek a second term. But as he formally embarks on his re-election campaign, Democratic leaders are increasingly confident that the polls fail to capture Biden's real strength 
and that the electoral map favors him over a Republican. That's today on The Daily from New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Forage Hawaii is a business with a mission to bring locally sourced protein to home chefs. Jessica Rohr started the company, and she talked with HBR's Stephanie Hahn about why eating local matters and how much how meat became her mission. Jessica Rohr is the founder of Forage Hawaii, a business dedicated to local meats and fish. She started it with a $5,000 Costco credit card, put in a lot of hard work and sweat, and remained faithful to her mission to bring high-quality meat and protein to home chefs. I paid a visit to her Dillingham warehouse to learn about Roar's entrepreneurial journey and discovered her thoughts on vegetarianism, women's jobs, workouts, hunting and foraging, sustainability and food sovereignty, bones and collagen, ingredients in lipstick, and the struggles and understanding that have built her business. How did you come to sell meat for a living? This is a bit unusual. Is it unusual because I'm a woman? Yes, I think so. It's so funny because when I do things that are typical of like male jobs I don't think of it that way because for me I'm like I'm doing it because it's interesting it's fun and when I used to work on boats for a living I have my captain's license and I drove boats and I got all the time people telling me like why do you do this and I'm like because it's fun (laughs) you know and I even had somebody once this woman she said so they let you drive the boat (laughs) sometimes I'm a little offended by that why is it so weird you know I just don't think twice about it, honestly. I've always done um, whatever sounded like fun to me, and I'm a bit of a tomboy, and it doesn't cross my mind a lot. One thing is, though, I am very strong, you know? I think a lot of things I do, it takes a lot, you know? And I'm six foot, I'm an athlete, and I lift approximately 3,000 pounds multiple times a month of meat and of my product back and forth so that's about how much we sell but but I'm taking stuff in and out of my freezers and to farmers markets and away from farmers market aside from that I don't really see the difference although I know there's just not as many female business owners as male business owners but if it's my personality I've always done boy jobs you know (laughs) I was boat captain or yeah on working on boats or doing hard jobs I mean like Jenny she works for me I've you know she does construction for a living as well (laughs) yes she's we look at it as our workout like we joke that this is the forage gym you know we don't have to go to the gym because we're lifting these 50 pound boxes of meat all all the time Roar is an unassuming pioneer of women who enter typically male-dominated industries And wow, what is being made here? Oh, Jenny's doing our chorizo sausage. Chorizo sausage traditionally has ground boiled pork skin in it. And of course, me being a whole animal person, I love that. When I found that out, I was so excited because one, it makes it super delicious. Two, it adds a ton of collagen. And three, it allows us to utilize the whole animal. Right, so what do you got right here? So this is an order from a customer that we've got up front. Um, We've got a couple of whole chickens, some lamb stew, and a couple of ribeyes. My name is Zoe and I live on Oahu's North Shore and I really love their ground beef and their sausages. Um, She makes all her sausage by hand as I can literally see her doing it right now. And it's delicious, seriously. It's absolutely amazing and you can taste the quality and the love that goes into everything that she makes. Yeah, (laughs) and I drove like an hour and a half to get here and I love her stuff so much. I will sit in all the traffic to get to your food. (laughs) So when you throw a barbecue, what happens? Basically, my mom is my neighbor and we buy a bunch of like tri-tips and all sorts of New York roasts and steaks and stuff and then just grill all night long and bring as many friends over as possible. (laughs) Like many in the business, 
Jessica Rohr was influenced by a family that prioritized good food. Are you from a hunting and gathering family? Because this concept of hunting and gathering, I'm imagining kind of survivalist. How did you come to this way of thinking? I do have a background um, eating hunted and wild food. My dad was a tugboat captain, and so he would bring home fresh fish or taco that they dove, they caught when they're diving and stuff. And so I had that experience as a young child, and then my mom married a hunter. My stepdad was really into hunting and fishing, and so every year, if he could, we he'd get um, an elk. I, I grew up kind of here in Colorado. I had the experience of the Colorado hunting and then the Hawaii fishing. Everything that I sell I, has an environmental impact that's positive. Like the deer is one of the biggest ecological issues in the state of Hawaii. I mean, it doesn't just destroy the land, it creates all this runoff that smothers the reef and destroys the ecosystems in the ocean. What is this tallow bomb and what is it made out of? That is made out of beef tallow and a little bit of organic local beeswax. It's pretty neutral. Um, Let me smell it. <laughs> There's not really a smell with it. And all like women's beauty products used to be made with a lot of animal products until recently. Like lipstick always had beef tallow in it. Yeah. I did it, not know that. Because it's the best moisturizer for your skin. It's more similar to our skin's fat, um, which is more saturated. I had no idea. I did not know that. I know. I just learned it too. Jessica Rohr's decision to enter the meat business was not easy and required a lot of deep reflection, experimentation, risk-taking, and study. I've always studied uh, nutritional anthropology. I'm really fascinated by um, nutrition in human history. And so when you go back and you look at that, it's like we've always been meat eaters. Uh, this is the first time you know humans have ever tried to have generations born eating zero animal products. And luckily we have all these supplements that can help with that and it's do totally doable. But we, ha we have been in history omnivores. I have a lot of friends who are concerned about the environment and they're vegans because of the environment or just because of whatever reason. And some of them thrive and some of them, you know, come see me after a while. I have a lot of people that, you know, when I started my business, the push against meat was really strong. I was up against a lot of hate. I did Earth Day do, and I just sold invasive venison because when you're overpopulated, then they start dying in, in horrendous ways. I still got so much hate. I've had so much people like fight with me on Instagram. And this was like when I first started. Now people are starting to embrace the idea of regenerative agriculture and like, you know, meat can be a part of a, a healthy system. And it, but I know in Hawaii, we don't have other sources of high quality protein that are local. And if you're going to import something that's a plant-based, then now it's, you've got a whole nother carbon footprint. And so for me, you know, transitioning from vegetarian, I was like tackling all these things, trying to do it right for the animals, do right for the environment and do right for my health. And I learned just through trial and error that for my health, it, I feel better when I'm eating meat. That's just me genetically. Jessica Rohr, owner of Forage Hawaii, is on a mission to help us eat better. She reminds us that delicious is linked to healthy and that smart protein choices taste good and can also be a lot of fun. Jessica Rohr, owner of Forage Hawaii, talking with HBR Stephanie Hahn about connecting home chefs with local protein. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Aloha United Way, partnering with organizations across sectors which are committed to helping address financial stability in Hawaii through its ALICE initiative. More about supporting the ALICE Fund at auw.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we hear about the Edge Technology Showcase. We'll find out about the work Ocean is doing to decarbonize hydrogen and their partnership with Hawaii Gas. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
Support for HPR comes from Chaminade University, dedicated to growing the state's teacher workforce and offering online bachelor's degrees for working adults. Learn more about the MUO Teacher Prep Scholarship at chaminade.edu. There's no question Hawaii is a tattoo-friendly place. And when it comes to traditional tattoos, many people think of Polynesian cultures. But there's another tattoo tradition in the Philippines. And HBR's Culture and the Arts reporter Cassie Ordonia is here with more on that. And uh, Cassie, thanks for, uh, for joining us today. And the practice getting attention, really. It's reached the cover of Vogue magazine now. That's right, Bill. Uh, this is a huge... Uh this is huge for the Filipino community here. Uh, we've never seen an older woman, especially a tattooed indigenous woman, on the cover of such a platform like this. 106? 106. Wow. I actually um, knew about Apawang Ode um, about a couple years ago. I think BBC News or some news outlet did a, um, a story about her and her art form, uh, which is called the Batok. It's a centuries-old uh, practice that it's also like a tattoo art form that involves a ceremony. So um, the fact that Apo Wang Old made the cover of Vogue magazine, it has heightened this awareness of Filipino tattoos because, you know, even for me growing up in the Bay Area and talking to other Filipino Americans even here in Hawaii, a lot of people associate tattoos with Polynesian culture, mm. or sometimes you'll see uh, something that's called uh, polypino. Mm. Um, so it's like a mixture of uh, the Polynesian tattoos and also the Filipino tattoos. But we have our own art form, and it tells a story on our body. And the fact that um, Apawang Ode made the cover, it was like a huge win. It also inspired a a new wave of a generation of Filipino cultural practitioners to perform this work. And um, in pre-colonial times, um, Filipino tattoos, they were celebrated. They kind of, they marked this accomplishment. They promoted fertility. And it's also like, it symbolizes this forever binding with your ancestors. Mm. A lot of Filipinos here in the diaspora who are trying to reconnect and they're trying to heal because a lot of us, like we didn't grow up learning about our culture because our families were trying to you know, provide a better life for us um, in the Filipino community. Um, so when you look at the word batok, it's very similar to batek, patek, borik, tatak. It also means to mark. It's the same. Uh, it's the same meaning of Polynesian. The Polynesian term called tatau, which also means to mark. And uh, Natalia Rojas has more uh, background on uh, the history of the Philippines. The Philippines has 7,467 islands, 185 ethno-linguistic groups. Everyone has their language, their culture, their traditions. And with that being said, there is a lot of similarities and a lot of nuances to each ethno-linguistic group. So that's why there are a lot of ways to call what I am doing. Right now, it has just been commonly known as batok. And yeah, it means to mark. And you point out also in your, in your piece that uh, differences and similarities, but cultural practitioners and tattoo artists and involved in this, and, and you spent time with, with both. I spent approximately, actually, two days with them. <laughs> um, I spent a full day with Natalia Rojas on Sunday. She's the one who does the traditional tapping. Mm -hmm. And then I spent Monday with Brendan Tenadora, who does the... Um, the machine gun work. Mm. Um, there are some similarities, though. It is kind of like a ceremonial process, but it also is kind of like another, like an interview process, like what we're doing. Uh. So they ask their clients, why do they want this tattoo? What languages do they speak? Where are their families from? And even for Natalia Rojas, um, she tries to promote um, her mentor, U.S.-based cultural practitioner Lane Wilkins' book, Filipino Tattoos. And I actually have the book, and it really helped me with my reporting because it has all these dense history of Filipi this Filipino art form. Um, so when Natalia does her ceremony, it, it can be several hours. So that ceremony with Genevieve Correa, um, it took nearly eight hours, and wow. she got her... Um, hand tattoos, and it's supposed to be uh, symbolizing her family lineage. And that, that theme of connecting with family 
and simultaneously healing, as as you mentioned before. Interesting combination of that. It is, and um, a lot of Natalia's clients come to her. They either don't know about their Filipino heritage, and sometimes they come with this anger towards their family, saying, you didn't teach me. And Natalia has told me that she would ask them, do you think it was easy for them to migrate here? Do you think it was easy for them to learn this new culture, this new language? And and this is sort of this healing process for them. It's also to mark this accomplishment or just reconnecting and weaving over to Brandon Tenadora. He does the same process. Even though his is more modern, it's becoming more popular, he still does the same process as to why do you want this tattoo? Are you going to give back to the community? And one client that he had was originally supposed to get his tattoo to reconnect with his culture, but he actually found out that his father passed away. So that gave Brandon more fire to actually add more to his story on his skin. That combination of, of storytelling at the heart, really, of, of this whole process. Interesting, interesting story, Cassie. Thanks for uh, for joining us, talking a little bit more about that, and uh, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. You can find Cassie's story online, of course. We've been talking to our culture and the arts reporter, Cassie Ordonia. You can read her stories on our website, and you can find that, of course, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. Curious about that black-crested bird you've seen flitting around your Oahu neighborhood? It's likely a red-vented bulbul. We've got its song today, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. If you live on Oahu, you've likely seen red-vented bulbuls around your house, neighborhood, or park. They're about eight inches long mostly black with a red patch under their tail or vent. They're also the only black bird on Oahu with a black crest on its head. Red-vented bulbuls are native to India and Southeast Asia and were introduced to Honolulu as cage birds in the 1950s. The name bulbul comes from a Persian word for nightingale, but the scratchy and throaty calls of the bulbul are not considered by many to be as melodious as those of that well-known bird. Red-vented bulbuls are considered pests as they love to eat various fruits like guava, lychee, mango, papaya, and even orchid buds, as well as insects and geckos. In Hawaii, red-vented bulbul is on the injurious wildlife list, and they're among the IUCN's list of top 100 invasive species worldwide. In addition to urban areas, they're common in upland forests, where they're known to spread the seeds of a number of invasive plant species. Like all birds, red-vented bulbuls are beautiful in their own way, but we should do our best to keep them from spreading from Oahu to other islands. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Evergreen by Deborah, providing tile, mosaic murals, and planters for more than 25 years. At evergreenbydebra.com, learn more about hydroflow permeable pavers designed to absorb rainwater and reduce runoff. backyard quiz, we told you about Carlos Long, a native Hawaiian politician who studied law at Georgetown University and was also a football all-star in the late 1800s. After he graduated, he moved back home and became involved in politics. As a Republican, he was elected to the House of Representatives' 4th District and sat in the legislature of the Territory of Hawaii from 1903 to 1905. In the 1903 session, he proposed the Long Municipal Act, 
which aimed to establish home rule and self-government for the citizens of Honolulu. It passed the House, but was vetoed by Governor Sanford B. Dole. Long was born on March 4, 1874, to Charles Long, an Italian immigrant from Milan, and Julia Naoho, a native Hawaiian from Maui. When his father passed away, his mother married John Colburn, which is the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. Colburn served as Queen Liliuokalani's Minister of the Interior just before the overthrow. That is today's quiz. We had no winner today. If you have a quiz you'd like to share, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Hips around the world will be swinging this Saturday as many mark International Dance Day. It's an activity that's prevalent in Hawaii and in Pacifica culture, whether it's the Hawaiian hula, Samoan fire dance, or the Tahitian otea. One local studio with interesting origins is Hawaii Dance Bomb on Oahu. The Ayahina Company offers a range of different types of classes for just about all ages. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with owner and instructor Miranda Rudiger in our studio this morning. The native Australian shared how she turned a past failure into one of the grooviest places in East Oahu. What are your earliest memories of falling in love with dance? Well, my first memory was not falling in love with dance. My first memory was doing ballet when I was five, and my mum pulled my hair when she did my bun, and it was painful, and I cried. And I quit ballet because the hairdo was too stressful, and I just wanted to watch cartoons. And then I didn't actually start dancing until grade seven when I was 12 when I met my jazz teacher who was one of my inspirations and she was just so amazing and I wanted to be her. So I, I took up jazz and that got me on the roller coaster of then doing contemporary and tap and hip hop and it was actually funk when I did it. It wasn't called hip hop, it was called <laughs> funk. <laughs> and then that led me to doing full-time dancing after school. So it kind of was this roller coaster from grade seven onwards. As you were growing up and as dance continued to be part of your life, what was it about that form of activity or self-expression that attracted you to it? It's like I used to learn saxophone and in one of my lessons I go, I love this bit of the song when it goes da-da-da-da-da and he was like, well, why? Why do you love that bit? And I'm like, God, I don't know. It just goes da-da-da-da-da and I just want to hear that thing and it makes me bubbly and happy and all I know is that if you put a song on that I like, I want to jiggle and wiggle and I'm immediately smiling and when I was a kid, me and my friend used to write down things we wanted to do on a piece of paper and we'd rip them up, put them in a box and we'd pull out one by one, like, what can we do? Go pick flowers, make up a dance, draw a picture. And I would always just write, make up a dance. And I'd just be waiting for the make up a dance to come out of that box so we could do it. Then we would force our parents to watch us doing long, silly shows. So I just, all I can tell you is that I know that if you put on music, I'm going to jump up and down. Yeah, yeah. So we've got some music queued up for you right okay, now. Okay, do it. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm ready. I wish I had thought of that. Yeah. So after high school, did you pursue dance in college or as a career? Yeah, so I did full-time dancing for a year after school finished. And I did certificate for and dance, which I worked really hard. I wasn't quite up to standard, but I went and did a bunch of extra classes and I was like, I want to do it. I'm doing it. Let's go. And they let me in, which was fantastic. And then in the end, I did fail it because I don't have a good body for ballet. Like my legs don't turn out well. I am not flexible enough to get my leg up to my nose when I kick my leg. And I'd had a neck injury as a kid doing a backward somersault. So my neck was really sensitive. So I failed ballet and acrobats because I didn't have the technical standards. And it's not to say I didn't have the style and the pizzazz and the fun and the like intricacies of the choreography. My technique just wasn't up to scratch. So I literally sat with the bosses and was like, hey, I know I failed. Should I bother? This just looked them in the eye and I was like, should I bother doing another year? What do you think? Am I going to make it? And they kind of said no. I don't know why, because I would think they would want to take my money. But anyway, they said no, and that broke my heart. And then when I was able to reflect sometime later, I kind of thought to myself, well, what would I have ended up doing if they'd said yes? Yeah. And at that time in Australia, what I would have ended up doing was being an extra on a TV show, being a caricature in a mall, 
being on a cruise ship doing the same show over and over again, being in the Australian ballet, which would have never happened, or doing a musical, which is great, but you repeat the same show every night for a long time. And for me, I don't think that's something I'd wanted to do. So when I really narrowed it down, I was like, oh, I don't actually want to do any of the options that becoming a professional dancer would lead me to. Anyway, then I went and did an arts degree and wasted some time and put on some weight and flailed around not knowing what I wanted to do. That led me into personal training, which led me into the gym, which led me back to dance through fitness dance. So I started teaching body jam and Zumba and all the fitness ways of dance. And then I found Groove and that's what's changed my life and that's what's given me all the messaging to know that I can utilize the skills I do have to continue doing what I love and I don't have to be able to get my leg up to my nose in order to do that. Obviously, being rejected by anyone for any reason is a tough thing to take. Do you feel a sense of relief that that ended up not being your path and you you found a, a different path that seems to be more suited to your personality and your heart for dance? Yeah, 100%. I feel like... It took me a really long time to be like, hey, people love to dance. I'm one of them. Just because I'm not going to go back up dance for J-Lo doesn't mean that I shouldn't get to dance every day and have fun with other people who also want to dance. We don't have to get our legs up to our noses. And I think so many people need to realize that. But it took me a very long time. And I don't expect everyone to just be like, oh, Miranda's on the radio and now I should have the confidence to come and jump up and down and shake my booty with her. It takes a lot of self-work and showing people who you are by moving your body is very vulnerable. It's easy for me to do a shimmy for you and be like, hey, this is who I am. Hi there. But for a random person who might do that in their bathroom when they're brushing their teeth to a favorite song, they don't have the guts to be like, this is who I am and I'm going to show you by moving my body. And it's sad and it's so fun when we get to do it together. After this fork in your journey, what then happened? At what point did you decide it was time for a change and you moved to Hawaii? They're almost two separate events. With Hawaii, I knew I wanted to live here my entire life. I used to record sections of any Hawaiian music I could hear and any movies in my little pink cassette player. And then I would play this random compilation of music that I'd made and lie in the backyard when I was like very little and pretend I was in Hawaii. Like something in me knew I always wanted to be here. I did move here in 2008 and I did every job under the sun. I was a host. I was a personal trainer. I worked at Abercrombie. I did everything you could and I could not make enough money to stay here. So I left. And then when I went home, that's when I discovered Groove, which is what changed everything. So Groove is a group dance class. Mm -hmm. It's like Zumba, but not Zumba. You have Zumba, which is where everyone's facing the same way, doing the same thing, facing front, following a leader. And then if you know about ecstatic dance, that's more of a like a hippie class where everyone's just doing whatever they want. They can move however they want. Everyone looks completely different. They're disconnected from each other because they're so deep in their own experience, but it's just a free-for-all. Groove is right in the middle. So we unite people with a rhythm and we invite them to add their own style. So if I said to you, we're going to go walk, walk, Mm -hmm. walk, walk, but now do it like you and I'll do it like me and we get to do it at the same time. It means we're united in the rhythm like you would be in a drum circle, but then you get to kind of ad lib on top a little bit with your flair. And the theories behind this class are you can't get it wrong. No matter how you do it, it's not wrong because that's how your body moves. Mm -hmm. You should look different because we all are different. And no one cares what you look like. Yes, we all think they do. But at the end of the day, because I shimmied for you, you're not going to go home and talk about me at dinner later. You're not going to be like, oh, there's a big shimmy that I saw. Like, it's not, I'm not that important. I just need to enjoy my own experience. So in learning these theories on the dance floor and then applying them to my life, it gave me the guts to just be like, hey, I'm going to do what I do best, which is personality, style, fun. And I'm going to invite other people to join me in that. On your website, it says, dance for me is basically a psychology lesson that teaches people, young or old, that no one really cares what they look like. So if they hold back on how they really want to move their bodies, they are the ones missing out. That sounds to me like dance in a lot of ways is a form of freedom. Can you talk more about what you meant by that? Okay, this is what I say to 15-year-olds when I'm teaching them and they're inhibited. Let's say... We're going to do a booty shake, right? And everyone does it. They're like, eh, we're embarrassed. We don't want to do it. I'm like, okay, let's break this down. Why don't you want to do it? What's the worst thing that could happen? And the answer is always the same. Someone might see me and someone might judge me. Like we're petrified of being judged. And 
the fear of humiliation for people is bigger than the fear of death, right? We don't wake up every morning going, oh, I'm so scared, I'm going to die today. We, we wake up going, oh, I wonder if I should wear, what should I wear so that everyone thinks I'm great, you know? So then I break it down and I go, what's the worst thing that can happen? Okay, someone will see you and they'll judge you in a negative way. Let's pretend that's happened. Let's say I did my shimmy and you thought I looked terrible. Great. One, I'm probably not going to know what you're thinking. But two, let's pretend I do. And I know that you think I'm terrible. I can choose here to care or not care. And if I care, I'm going to stop shimmying because I'm going to go, oh, I don't want you to see me do that ever again. And I'm going to never shimmy and it's going to ruin my whole life. Or I can go, oh, well, everyone's got an opinion. I'm just going to keep shimmying because it's really fun for me. We think 80,000 thoughts a day. I'm one of their thoughts. It's going to fly by and not exist anymore in just a second, you know? This is why I said it's a psychology lesson. You have to face, like, really choosing to not care what other people think about you so that you can be set free. The other thing is I wanted to build a community, right? I honestly thought to myself, if my money goal came true and let's say I had a million dollars, great. What am I going to do if I have a million dollars? What am I going to do every day? Just sit on the couch and watch TV? That'll be so depressing. And I really thought about it. I was like, what would I want to do with my time if money wasn't an issue? And my answer was, I want to dance with people every day because, as I said, that's what lights me up and makes me bubbly. So what I did was design my life to create these opportunities where I get to dance with people every day. So I just feel like I'm doing all these really fun things and I'm searching for the people who want to do these things with me. I don't want to sell anyone. I don't want to force people to do things they don't want to do. I just want to find the other people that this kind of stuff lights them up and I want to jump up and down with them and pretend we all have a million dollars. Miranda, thanks so much for coming into the studio this morning. I had so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Miranda Rudiger, owner of Hawaii Dance Bomb, talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. We'll have a link to her classes, including the 90s hip-hop class some of our producers are talking about trying, on the conversation page on our website later today. Time to go today, but tomorrow, Yunji Denise will be here talking with two experts on long COVID. We'll be taking your questions as well as discussing just where we are in the fight against the virus. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to something you heard, find our archive shows online, searching for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Bill Dorman. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Conversation.